Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. After many years, after many technical challenges, after many upgrades and eventually a new laptop, I am able to finally bring you the man himself, the legend, Dr. John Caldwell from Ohio in the USA. John, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for that wonderful thing. And yes, it has been a technological rough road to get here, but we're here now. So we're here it's now. all good. Before before we delve into um, your background, John, I just want to give listeners uh, a bit of a background. Myself and John met probably around 2008, 2009 um, in Australia originally when I was doing some stuff with a mining company. Uh, John at the time worked for a technology provider in the area of sleep and performance. John was based in one of probably the, one of the worst places you could live in the world at the time. John was based in Hawaii. He really struggled. And I we had to have a few conversations about you know, John's inability to cope with the Hawaiian climate because he really did not like it. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, you know. Someone had to do it. So John was out there in the front lines of the Pacific, the Pacific keeping that water warm for us all. Um, so John and I obviously became friends through that work. Um, and then over the years, we've ran into each other in, in Hawaii together. We caught up in Hawaii when I was there, uh, Montreal. Uh, Brisbane, uh, Perth in Australia, a number of places, and we keep in contact quite a lot. John has also co-authored and um, been somewhat of an external supervisor and mentor to me on my academic journey from moving out of the industry area. So uh, not only in conjunction, but being a friend of mine, um, John has also been a very instrumental in mentoring me about my, my writing and direction. So which I'm obviously very thankful for. And uh, John and I continue to, to work on, on papers together and collaborate on other projects. So uh, this will be very much a, a fun, jovial conversation. So I'm interested in actually asking John some questions that I've probably never actually asked him, but by uh, virtue of having the podcast mechanism, I can ask him these questions. So yeah, this is a... Uh... I didn't wait. I didn't know about this. <laughs> you didn't warn me about this. Oh, yeah. We'll kick right off to it. On the night of April 12th, 1996, where were you and who were you with? <laughs> Luckily, I have no boundaries, so I think we're going to be safe. <laughs> yeah. So uh, trigger warning, John's one of John's favorite phrase, f- phrases that John says to me is, well, fuck that. So, um, <laughs> which I, yeah. I actually use in my house now. <laughs> I often say, yeah. to quote the great John Caldwell, fuck that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Caution <laughs> is advised, listeners. So, John, um, as uh, we have introduction for yourself, can you let people know you know, where you grew up and sort of what your life was like up until the time you left high school. Wow, this, these <laughs> are some loaded questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was actually born and raised in New Orleans and then probably, I don't know how old that was when we got transferred over to Mobile in South Alabama. So um, my family lived there for quite a while. I um, uh, got the opportunity to attend military school uh, starting in about the 10th grade because I was so easy to get along with in regular public school that they thought it would be nice for me to be re-socialized. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so that's where I graduated from. I graduated from Marion Military Institute in a little town 
you know, about three or four hours uh, north of the Gulf Coast in Alabama. So, John, a lot of people um, around the world wouldn't have military school. Like in Ireland, we wouldn't have it, or Australia. Many countries wouldn't have military school. They would associate that with being actually in the military. What exactly is military school? If you're a middle or upper middle class American and you have a child that's a juvenile delinquent, then instead of having them sent to the Department of Youth Services or some other correctional facility, then you pay big bucks to send them to military school so that they can learn discipline and respect for authority and how to follow rules and things like that. That's it. So that was, that was wasted money on you is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I learned a few skills that I can pull out whenever necessary. Like I did actually put on a nice shirt for this you know, conversation tonight. So every now and then, a few little tips to take yeah. care of. <laughs> I, 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 thank you for being fully clothed tonight. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Problem. <laughs> so John when you when you left military school and uh you obviously went on to to university um what sort of what made you choose your path in university what what was your kind of affinity with that I didn't actually choose the university myself it was uh my father chose the school for me and um, it, it was a little school in South Alabama, probably about 4,000 students called Troy State University. And um, that was a suitable place because it wasn't too far away from where my grandparents lived on my father's side. And so <clears throat> I would have that family connection there. And it was really quite fortunate because I had a uh, couple of cousins that lived there, and I got along very well with, with my grandparents, far more so than with my parents. And so I would go there every weekend, and, you know, we developed quite a, a close relationship. And I think my, I consider my grandfather, you know, probably, a, probably the primary, like, family mentor in my life. I mean, he was an executive with with a company, but it's just really, I mean, he grew up, um, you know, not, not a wealthy person at all. He worked like a dog, you know, and grew up on a farm and made his way up, up through the ranks, you know, yeah. and was really quite an accomplished gentleman. And my grandmother, you know, was saying, you know, I mean, they all came from very humble backgrounds, but were, you know, I, I think very sophisticated but non-pretentious people and were great parent roles for me. So, mm. so it was a good thing, you know? Yeah, I think it's really instrumental to have some people that can kind of guide you in your, in your life. So it's, 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 it's nice to hear that, that it was coming from your grandparents. So when you, when you went to university, John, um, you obviously got into the area of experimental psychology, which you, you know, have... Uh, published a lot in this area uh, did you have any affinity towards psychology or did you have any other kind of careers you were considering did you did you want to be an astronaut did you want to be a surgeon did you want to be a lumberjack was there anything else that was on the table that you were considering at that time uh, at the time when I started working on my bachelor's degree I really I knew I wanted to go into psychology and I thought I wanted to go into clinical psychology 
And um, so that was my track for my freshman, sophomore, junior, up until my senior year. Uh, with, that was my objective, was to get my bachelor's in psych and then go on and get a master's and, and PhD. <laughs> and um, I took a weekend job working at a rehabilitation center as part of the dormitory staff. And after my first weekend, I came back um, to school and I told my uh, major professor advisor, I said, I want to change my major now. I don't want to do this. <laughs> He's like, wait, whoa, wait, wait a second. I said, no, I can't. This just isn't for me at all. I can't deal with these clients. And he's like, well, I mean, there are other areas of psychology you can go into. I mean, you don't have to completely get out of the field. And so I thought, okay, well, then we'll explore that a little bit and I'll stick around for a while. So I did get my bachelor's in psych with a minor in sociology and German. German. Yeah. Ah. I figured, you know, try to be part of the classical, you know, descendants of the Freudians and the Jungians and all of those other oh. folks. So yeah, that's why I took my minor in German. That's a sehr gut, my friend. That's all I learned after three years of German at school. I would like two sausages and a beer, please. And two large beers. And it, it got me, it got me far in life, John. Hey, you know, it's just knowing the little bit you need to know to get along in life. That's the key. Yeah, a guy, a guy said to me years ago, he, I think it might have been in Cuba, he said to me, there's only two sentences you need to know in Spanish. Donde este baño? Like, where's the toilet? And uh, <laughs> do cerveza, por favor. So two more beers and then una. Oh, actually, and at a mass, he says, more. <laughs> That's all you need to know. If you know it all, you'll be fine. <laughs> you can yeah. start up any conversation at the back of that. Yeah. <laughs> So, 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 John, you went down the route of experimental psychology. Um, what, what exactly would be, how would you describe experimental psychology to somebody who wouldn't understand the kind of different factions of psychology? Well, I really, you know, the primary emphasis in, in experimental is more experimental design, how you design studies so that you get valid results, how you... Um, you know, prepare to statistically analyze your data. And so it's really more about just making sure that you can do good quality research. Mm. It wasn't any specific topic that, you know, that I was interested in. It was just basically how to do the research. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I, um, it's kind of interesting because the, when I went to get my PhD, there was a laboratory that, and, and a professor that I really wanted to work with. And he was a psychophysiologist and was doing a lot of work on, you know, heart rate perception and uh, various things. And um, I, you know, kept walking by his lab and, and saw all the cool stuff that was in there. And I thought, hey, man, I, you know, I'd really like to be one of your students. Well, he was in the clinical faculty and I was experimental. And so he's like, first of all, what the hell are you talking to me about? You should be talking to those other people that, you know, <laughs> work elsewhere in the department. I said, no, man, I really want to work for you. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, 
I'm now computerizing my lab. So if you'll get some computer skills, then you're on my team. I said, all right, I can do that. And so I basically picked up a minor in computer software design uh-huh. so that I could do laboratory instrumentation. So that's how I got into that. And I loved it. I mean, uh, probably, I don't know, it would have been a draw, you know, if I'd gotten into computer science much earlier on, because I, I really did enjoy it. But really, I think that has a lot in common with experimental psychology, because it's really more about, you know, planning how you're going to do things and coming up with flow charts. And yeah, yeah, how are we going to get to where we want to go, you know, is really more that more the issue in both of those fields, I think. I, I think you touch on something, John, that is is a very important factor in the areas of science and engineering and often gets overlooked. I think people outside of the field think that you just go in and you see a problem and you try and solve it straight away. But in actual fact, using the old 80-20 pre-dochar principle, uh, 80-20 design, uh, you need to spend 80% of the time actually designing the methodology and how you're going to assess and solve the problem. There's so much in that getting the design right of the study. And I and I I totally agree with that. A lot of people don't see that. They think like writing up is the easy part. But if you spend most of your time getting the experimental design and your methodology right, it's actually the write-up is easy because that informs, you know, the quality of the data. And then once you get the data, you can analyze that. And then that informs, you know, the discussion of the paper. And, you know, we've had these these discussions before, the kind of the intro then is, you know, subjective, really. It's kind of just setting up what's going to happen. But that methodology part is probably the most crucial part of a scientific paper. And it's, I think for me, it's the first place I go on most papers. I go and look at the methodology and see how rigorous it was um, before we design experiments. So it's really, it's really interesting that you saw that affinity across multiple domains, because I've actually seen the same, I would say the same thing from, coming from general health and safety roles and business improvement roles and studying engineering as well. It's about understanding the problem and how you're going to tackle it more so than the application. The, the application of the intervention or the, the solution should be the, the smallest component of any project or research project, I think. Yeah, well, you know, I uh, the first real job that I had was at Children's Hospital in uh, Washington, D.C. And I spent a good time with this with the hospital statistician there. And, you know, I watched her just repeatedly pull her hair out because people in the hospital, physicians and PhDs that worked in various places in the hospital would collect these data. And without consulting anything with any with her you know up front and then they would get all this data and come in and go here it is analyze it and make sense out of it she's like whoa wait a minute you know like I need some parameters on this and we need to get down to brass tacks and you know even today I, I um, referee for a lot of journals and I mean I get all sorts of you know, papers to look at. And some of them are just so far out of my field that I don't really feel like I can properly evaluate them. But for the most part, you know, that's what I focus on. I mean, I go, yeah, I read the background. Does this make sense why somebody's going to do this? But the real focus is on the method section. I mean, how did you go about 
getting your data? Did you have the proper controls in there? And then how did you how do you analyze it? Because really, no matter what you're researching, if you put together a good plan and up front you think through the problems that you're going to face and what could confound your results, mm-hmm. then you know you can pretty much do research in in any area. You know, if you yeah, take the yeah. time to to get the foundation, but you know the methods. That's the key, I think. That's why, John, I would love to, uh, personally, I'd love, to, I'd like to do this myself, but I'd also like to run as viv an experiment. I would like to take potentially a PhD in, and I'll just confine it to the sciences. Let's say you took someone like my, myself or yourself, the area of chronobiology, experimental psychology, sleep science. I would like to take someone like us and put us into a, a physics lab and see if we can publish a paper within a year. Just to see, like, does that scientific thinking actually transcend subjects independent of the subject matter expert knowledge? Because I think you can gather that over time. You can you can basically learn anything, but it's the it's the it's the thinking, it's the approach, it's the critical analysis, it's the um, I don't know, maybe the the mindset to it. But I'd be, I'd be often in, interested to see if you could swap people over and see if that would work. Because and the other part I like about that as well, and 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 you have way more experience than I would in this is. I think the more we cross boundaries in terms of skills, the more we learn. Um, like a classic example at the moment is I'm trying to investigate the relationship between sleep mythology and folklore in the Irish culture. Now that's two very polar opposite fields coming together. How can I marry the science with, you know, you know, this kind of logos and eros thing to use, you know, Jungian terms and and philosophical terms and, and get into theology, but how do you bring those two areas together that we generally diametrically opposed in terms of papers, bring them together and write a paper. And I think by doing that, even if you don't write anything, the process of that, the journey is extremely fascinating because you're learning so much about these things. You know, I, I totally agree. And I haven't gone quite that far afield myself, but, you know, after working in, um, fatigue management, sleep deprivation, sleep management research for military aviation. That's, you know, been my primary focus for the past, I don't know, six, seven years. I'm working for a senior scientist at the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine, and they do nutrition research and cold stress and heat stress and altitude and all of this stuff, which I don't know anything about, but often, you know, that's my job is, okay, we need literature searches on this. We need, you know, a protocol, a background section, you know, yeah. rationale. How are we going to go about doing this research? And, and you know, I've learned quite a, quite a bit in, in that job. I mean, of course, as a go through somebody that's more expert in the, specific area that we're that we're into but still you know I mean it's sort of gotten me out of that just one area of focus into doing some other things and it's been pretty great it was pretty scary at first but uh, you know it's been pretty gratifying to actually go into to different fields and see that yeah I can I can do that too you know it's a matter of you know, having a good, solid approach to becoming educated and, um, you know, doing your best not to make stupid mistakes and 
when you really find out that you're in an area that you just don't really understand, reaching out to somebody who does and not feeling embarrassed about that and, and getting a little help along the way. So I, I think it's great to kind of get out of your little niche. Now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to embarrass you slightly here, John, because you've said that awesome statement there about, you know, or you've described that about the sort of issues there about being slightly afraid or moving into a different area and having that courage and learning stuff and being quite open. Um, it's, it's also probably worth noting for people who haven't looked up John Calder on the internet, John has got like 500 years experience nearly <laughs> combined in, in about 30 years experience. John, your accolades are unbelievable. You also hold the U.S. Air Force highest civilian award for research and development. You're a fellow of the Aerospace Medical Association, a fellow of the Aerospace Human Factors Society. You've worked with the U.S. Army, as you said, as well, Medical Research and Material um, Command. Then you've worked with NASA and the U.S. Air Force. You work all across the world. You've been on television multiple times. You also have the you know, the best book out there in terms of fatigue management and aviation, a guide to staying awake at the stick. And you still, at this time in your career, still get that slight fear, anxiety, nervousness, but still have the humility and the ability to enter into new areas. So for me, I think that's such an important thing that you said that marries up with your career because people would look at you on paper and think like, you know, that you click your fingers and you have it smashed and you know everything, but you are still evolving and learning and improving. And I think that is absolutely tremendous, you know, and with all due respect at your stage in your career, you, you should be able to sit back, put on your slippers, spark up a pipe full of marijuana, if you wish, and pontificate to the world and tell everybody what to do, but you're not, you're still acting as if you were a grad student. That's awesome. You, uh, you know, I appreciate that. I, yeah, I'm I'm still scared that I'm gonna screw up, you know. I mean, <laughs> I wanna I, there's a lot I don't know and you know, I I'm always open to trying to figure my way through it. But I mean, man, the world's complex these yeah. days, you know. I think if you start thinking you know everything, even if it's the most narrow subject in the world, then you're fooling yourself because Things are moving fast and, you know, you just can't have that expertise in everything. That's for sure. Yeah. I can't even work on my own car anymore. I used to be <laughs> able to. I mean, my father's hobby was auto mechanics. I can't tell you how many times I spent pulling engines and doing tune-ups and, you know, body work and, you know, taking care of uh, automobiles and, you know, making them run right and now uh, i don't even check my own oil because it's like <laughs> wow open the hood i just don't even know what to do there so the world's changing fast you know so i'm not really keeping up i'm just doing my best yeah yeah oh uh, i i think it's absolutely great because um i i feel i get this a sense of anxiety sometimes when i start like watching lectures or listening to podcasts and whilst the internet is uh is awesome but just the the um the, the 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 quantity of knowledge and the rate of how it's been released is unbelievable and people are probably ironically listening to this podcast saying yeah Ian, you're adding to it by putting out more podcasts but <laughs> i i understand that but it's just you nearly feel as uh 
you know, anxiety and pending sense of doom with all this information to learn because so many topics are, are so interesting. And like you said, the world is so complex. So I think it, I think it, I think it's great that you're, uh, you're still um, on that forefront of knowledge. So John, let's, let's reverse back up and, and let's talk about how you actually got into working in the area of fatigue management with these organizations like the U S air force and NASA. How did that come about? And when we started, when you started asking me these questions about why I chose this path and that path, it made me think of a podcast that I watched like three or four weeks ago with, with the whole subject of the podcast is find what you love and do that. Find, you know, what speaks to you and do that. But, you know, I don't remember who the guy was that was saying it, but he says, you know, that's really a big mistake because most people don't know what they want to do they don't yeah. know what their path is and I didn't I mean you know I was interested in psychology but like I said when I started out I fully planned to be a clinical psychologist and you know because I was thinking that's actually I wanted to be a psychiatrist to tell you the truth so um but I wanted to be in the psychology but actually have a medical degree and um really a lot of things in my life just found me more than I found them and so a case in point is that uh so how did I get into fatigue research well when I was working on my PhD, there was a guy there who worked for an army laboratory. And so we, we weren't great friends, you know, but we were, you know, we'd chat with each other from time to time. And the first job that I got when I left was, you know, to be an assistant director of behavioral medicine laboratory at Children's Hospital. So I was doing, you know, running studies and you know, supervising a lot of work in the laboratory there and still doing a lot of computer programming work and things like that, which I, I enjoyed just fine. We were working with, um, you know, the impact of nutritional manipulations on um, hyperactive children and also doing some drug studies with uh, learning disabled children. And uh, it was truly a great experience. And while I was there, um, my wife, who I married right before I got into graduate school, right before I went to work on my PhD, she had a master's degree. She was an assistant at the laboratory, was hired as an assistant in the same laboratory. And so she decided to go back to school and she went back to the same school where I got my PhD and she got her master's because it was the most efficient thing to do. And that wasn't in Washington, D.C. It was in Mississippi. So it was about, you know, maybe two or two or three hour drive from this laboratory where this guy that I had met in graduate school worked. And um, so he called me up, you know, one day and said, hey, we've got a position here at this laboratory. Well, I had just got my pilot's license while I was in DC. And so I had always had this interest in aviation. So here I was getting this opportunity to go work at the US Army Aeromedical Research Laboratory, working with helicopter pilots, doing research with helicopter pilots. 
And plus my wife was moving anyway. So she was going to be like two or three hours away as opposed to seven or eight hours away. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, yeah, this is just kind of coming together. And so we picked up and moved down to to Alabama and then she went to school every week and we'd come home on the weekends. I took a job at the Aeromedical Research Laboratory and um, I started, um, the first study that I did was I was working in the area of uh, chemical defense antidotes and pretreatments, which was a big thing at the time, you know, because this was before the the Gulf War. And so one of the biggest threats this to the, the first the first Gulf War was yes. Yeah, 91. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the biggest concerns was uh chemical weapons, you know, you, as you might remember, you yeah, know, it was a big yeah. problem at the time. And so uh, there was a lot of money to do chemical defense research. So the first study that I did, which was not a study that I designed, it was one that was handed off to me by this guy that uh, had invited me to come down and apply for the job, was the effects of atropine sulfate on helicopter pilots uh, in flight. This is an in-flight study with this medication where people would get these injections of atropine sulfate, which is a chemical defense antidote, to see if they could fly once they had exposure to this antidote, uh, because it does have a lot of effects, you know, mm. other than being a chemical defense antidote. And so the thought was, well, what if somebody thinks they're exposed and they inject this stuff, then is that going to yeah, be a big yeah. problem or are they going to be able to, you know, get back home just fine? <laughs> and I tell, uh, it was kind of funny, you know, because this study was a follow-on to a simulator study, which I didn't have anything to do with. And so it was, the, the, he, they were required to run this simulator study to make sure that there was even any way close to being able to run this on real pilots in real aircraft. <laughs> and there was one guy who crashed in the simulator. And so the way that was written up was that there was an inadvertent ground contact. <laughs> so <laughs> it sounded so much better than a crash. But anyway, <laughs> so we got to do this in-flight study. So we were doing that. And I was really, you know, I guess that was the plan forward. Was uh, I was doing some other stuff. I was doing the work on stress factors and pilots and things like that. But probably the chem defense was the way to go. Well, after the first Gulf War, the chemical, nobody got hit with chemical weapons. And so it's kind of like, oh, well, this really isn't as big of a problem as we thought it was. And so a lot of the money dried up in that area. So now I'm working more into stress and things like that. And uh, I was at Fort Rucker, Alabama, which is the home of Army Aviation. Hoorah. And um, right across the street uh, from the laboratory is Lister Army Hospital, which is the home of the Army's aeromedical activity. And so any sort of things that could medically affect pilots and crew members has to be approved through an advisory committee, which is located there at Fort Rucker, Alabama. 
And so a special operations group had gone to them and said, um, we want to use dextroamphetamine to keep our pilots safe from fatigue problems on a really super demanding mission that we have upcoming. And we'd like permission to do that because currently it wasn't authorized. And they said, can you show me a study where that's been tested on sleep deprived helicopter pilots and it's safe? And they said, well, no, because there isn't one. And they said, well, if you can get that study done, then we will consider your request. <laughs> and that's how I got into the area of fatigue and sleep deprivation. Because, and I didn't want to do amphetamine research, by the way. I didn't really have a particularly wonderful opinion about it. I, I think I had the same opinion that a lot of people in society have. Oh, we're going to put these pilots on drugs and, you know, it's going to be a horrible thing and all of that. And, um, but, you know, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it, you know, because needed to be done and I thought it'd be an interesting thing even though I wasn't all that interested in the subject area but I'm telling you man after I ran the first three or four subjects and I looked at what those subjects looked like when they were sleep deprived under placebo and I looked at what they looked like when they were sleep deprived on dextroamphetamine I'm like you don't have to sell this to me anymore. <laughs> I'm on it. And so I very rapidly got deeply involved in this issue of fatigue management with pharmacological countermeasures. And in the meantime, my wife had finished graduate school. So she had her PhD. Right after she graduated, she went to Walter Reed back up in DC. Yeah. But then a position opened up her medical research lab where I was. So she moved there. We know why she was particularly interested in sleep, but she was interested in it. And there was a reduction in force that occurred. And so she ended up kind of getting laid off, I guess is the right word for it. And she says, well, well I have this you know, I'm laid off. So I'm going to go and get my specialty in sleep medicine. <laughs> and so she went to Birmingham, which is about two hours away and spent, I don't know, a year, two years, something like that up there. And so she became a board certified sleep specialist. So she comes back to the lab and now we're working together on everything, you know, and She's taking care of all the polysomnographic recordings and the sleep staging and all of that. Uh, we're working in the same part of the building. So we're sharing a laboratory. So we build a laboratory there and she's taking care of the effects of hypnotics on aviator performance. I'm taking care of the effects of stimulants on aviator performance with both of us dealing with using these medications to fight fatigue in circumstances during which sleep just simply isn't an option mm. or in which circadian disruption is just a given and it's totally unavoidable. So it's like, what are you going to do? I mean, you can preach all day long, hey, you need to get plenty of sleep. But look, when the mission demands you get out there, then 
all that goes out the window. You know, the mission comes first. And so we, we, I think we're both really quite dedicated to making sure that you're on military personnel. We're safe under these circumstances. And so, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. It was, it wasn't like I ever just sat around and went, Oh, wow, man, this would be a cool <laughs> thing to, to research. I really just never even thought about it, but you know, the opportunity came my way. And once I right it from the very start once i got into it i thought yeah this is where i need to be and where i want to be and so that's where i stayed for most of my career i think that's a really nice um story john because i think you're right i think a lot of people sit back and kind of pontificate for years i need to find my purpose i need to find my meaning i need to find like what i'm designed for next minute you're 35 sitting on the couch looking out the window and nothing has happened and this could be just a bit of a confirmation bias because I was like you. I, I just basically kind of did anything that interested me and I wanted to do it the best I could. And then a bit like a cat with a ball of string, I would go on to the next thing and, and you know, do that. I never sat at school, and I've said this before, looking out the window going, I want to be a sleep performance scientist and, and do this work. I wouldn't even know what happened. And I was too busy, you know, giving the, the, the science teacher the finger when his back was turned and making people laugh in class. And I was opposed to actually getting a good grade. So um it is interesting how... here. <laughs> <laughs> when i when i jo- when i left school to join the military because i left in the last year of school halfway through the headmaster said to me you better make something out of the military because if you keep going the way you're going you're going to be in jail and i said well that's your opinion i said i've never been in trouble yeah yeah we're well, going down a slippery path so um i'm hoping someday i get invited back to that school to give a talk as a somebody with a phd and a couple of masters and uh adjunct professor position i shall uh I shall sew it into them. How you like will probably come. Have faith. How you how you like me now? <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, I probably still would end up in jail anyway. But um, <laughs> I think I think um, I think it's you know in lieu of understanding or knowing exactly what you want to do, I think doing something is better than doing nothing. And you have to go out there and, and sort of start doing something to head in, in a direction. And it mightn't be necessarily the right direction, but once you start moving, you know, these opportunities, I think, open themselves up. And I think part of it for people is obviously luck or like what happened with yourself and Lynn and that story you articulated. I think that's just, that wouldn't have happened if you sat at home on the couch looking out the window going, someone should offer us a job together working in a lab. It's like, okay, we reach a problem, we move here, we push there, we do this, we move across the road, you get made redundant or laid off, you go down here, you get qualified, you come back, and eventually, you know, it happens. Whether that's free will or it's, you know, destiny or whatever it might be, I, you know, it's hard to, hard to know. Or that's a debate you could have for years. But uh, I think it's, it's a real nice, interesting story about, you know, kind of doing things that are interesting and just taking advantage of opportunities as well and, and looking to improve and to move forward. And I think if you do that, a lot of good things will open up in front of you and you will start getting choices. No choices gets presented to people sitting on the couch, you know, watching Netflix or looking out the window. That's not how it works. And uh, I think the final thing on that is, it's like a friend of mine says, sometimes you have to do shitty jobs or do shitty things. He calls it, sometimes you have to eat shit, he says. And I think it's true. Sometimes you have to do crappy things or you know, be apart from one another for a while or make sacrifices or do projects you're not particularly interested in to get through that and then other stuff will open up. Hey, one of the best research assistants I ever had 
was a female that came to me at, at one point and she said, you know, I sent a letter of interest in here, you know, about six months ago and I really would like to work here as a student contractor. And so, you know, I just kind of wanted to follow up on that. And I said, well, I mean, so what have you been doing in the meantime since you got out of school? And she said, I've been working in a jewelry store. I said, oh, okay. She says, yeah, it's okay. But, you know, I really would rather do something else. And I thought, you know, I'm going to hire this person because she's not waiting around Mm. for somebody to hand her the freaking golden cow. She's going to do whatever it takes to be productive and to do her best at something. And I really think, you know, you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about the same thing. And you said, well, you've, you know, chased various things. And, you know, like you said, the ball of string or whatever, but you don't just half-ass chase those things. I mean, the things you go after, you do your best at those things. Mm -hmm. And that opens up other opportunities because it's not really necessarily what you know in a specialty area showing that when you commit to doing something, you're going to do it, whether it's working at the gym, whether it's working at the jewelry store, whether it's pumping gas, whether it's cleaning floors, I don't care. You know, what I want to see is, are you going to do the, you know, the best that you can at whatever your job is? And, you know, I feel that same way about having personal relationships with people. I mean, you know, I'm not married, uh, at this point and you know i always said well if i find a partner i don't care whether he works in a gas station or not as long as he goes to work every day (laughs) and does a good job and is an honest person you know then that's what i care about and so uh, you know i think it's that i think you do that you show people that it's like you said, sometimes you have to do shit work, you know, but if you do your shit work and you do it well, people are going to notice that and they're going to say, well, hey, you know, this guy's doing a rough job and not getting paid much and not getting any glory for it, but he still comes in here and he does it and he does his best at it. I'd rather see that any day of the week than pedigrees 20 miles long. Yeah. Because I've yeah. known a lot of people with long pedigrees that I can't stand to be in a room with for more than five minutes. But I can sit and talk to the guy that works at the gas station, shows up every day, and we get along just fine. Yes, we shall compare notes after this conversation. <laughs> the following people. <laughs> John, I want to yes. come back to uh, what you spoke about, about amphetamines, because uh, some people might be listening to this and go, wow. You're telling me you give amphetamines. You're talking about like speed and these type of drugs. You're actually giving them to pilots to keep them awake. Isn't this illegal? Is this allowed? Like, I can't believe they're allowing people to do this. To my answer to that would be the government can do whatever they like. <laughs> but basically, True. Is, is, this, is this what goes on? Are, are pilots taking amphetamines on a daily basis or just in mission critical activities during a wartime period? Um, how, how does this actually work in practicality? Well, there are a number of flaming hoops that have to be jumped through in order to do this. I mean, there has to be a policy in place, first of all, that says, okay, we've established, you know, 
how how to use these medications in certain circumstances. And there has to be some empirical data that says, look, we've looked at this, we've kept people awake for X number of hours, we've provided them with this particular dosage level on this particular schedule, and these are the results that we got. Were there problems with that? Or were people you know, able to function effectively under that regimen that's, that's been established? And oftentimes people, when, when they get all upset about amphetamines and other kind of drugs in operational context, they're like, they want to compare the pilot on amphetamines to the well-rested pilot who doesn't need medication. And that's the comparison. Mm. That's not the real world comparison. No pilots want to take these medications. And in fact, there's never been a U.S. Army military mishap associated with the use of amphetamines, despite what you might have heard on the news, like the Canadian Friendly Fire incident, which was investigated and found that amphetamines had absolutely no role in that particular incident. And there's just never been a problem with it. So all of this is a lot of media hype on this. These are very tightly controlled uh, medications. In fact, if you're an army aviator and you're about to be deployed in a situation where it looks like continuous and sustained operations are going to be an issue where you may have to remain awake for up to 60 or 70 hours straight, which we know seriously degrades performance in pretty much any sort of aspect you can think of, then start going down the road of, okay, well, what are we going to do in that circumstance? And if it looks like uh, amphetamines are going to be an option there, then that pilot has to first undergo a test dose of the amphetamine that's going to be administered, or also modafinil or provigil is now authorized as well. So that's an alternative. Either way, you have to go through a test dose. You have to sign an informed consent agreement, which indicates that you are aware that this medication is not approved by the Federal Drug Administration for the treatment of sleep-deprived normal personnel because really these medical use of these drugs is for the treatment of narcolepsy and attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, not for sleep deprivation. Um, so you have to sign paperwork, which says, I'm aware of this. I'm aware that, you know, like any medication, there could be some side effects associated with this drug, but I'm going to elect to take it under these circumstances because I feel like it's safer than the alternative. So you pass your test dose. You have your uh, informed consent agreement on file. That has to be done before you're deployed. So then once it's out in the field, the shit hits the fan. You've got a bunch of people that are having to operate 24-7 around the clock, trying to sleep under helicopters in the desert in 105 degrees with aircraft taking off around and vehicles moving around and 
on and on and on. I mean, you know, the most inhospitable environment you can imagine. And, you know, so somebody at the unit up in the leadership of the unit is going to talk to the flight surgeon and go, you know, look, I think we need to use these medications. That goes up the chain of command, has to be approved by the senior leadership there. Once that approval comes down, then the flight surgeon is authorized to administer a specific number of these medications to each individual face-to-face, write this down, and then at the conclusion of the flight has to retrieve any medications which were not consumed so that they're all accounted for. And the amount of time that people can be kept awake on these medications for the Army uh, right now is 64 continuous hours. You can't exceed that point of time before there's a suitable rest period in between. So, you know, people get the idea that like, oh, somebody just sticks a crate of drugs out in the field. And people get to go and get their yeah, handfuls yeah. of them. And it's just nothing could be further from the truth. And, you know, when I first started with this medication, I was working with an Air Force flight surgeon. I, I don't know whether he's retired or not. But anyway, he was ultimately the general in charge of the Air Combat Command for the Air Force. And he and I were uh, presenting at a conference. And this was early on, probably after the first amphetamine study I had done. And he had been a flight surgeon out in the field uh, during the uh, first desert conflict and some other things as well. And so I gave my talk, you know, this is what we found in the laboratory, blah, 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 all this. And then he gave his talk about this is what we've done in the operational environment. And uh, somebody in the audience said, well, sir, I have a question. He's like, okay, what, you know, what do you need? He says, I mean, aren't you really concerned about the fact that pilots are going to become addicted to these medications because they are known to be addictive drugs? And he said, well, first of all, I've administered these medications to quite a number of pilots in operational circumstance, and I've never seen one single instance in which a pilot was addicted or craving medications or even wanted to take the medications when they didn't have to, number one. Number two, I'd rather treat an addicted pilot than a dead pilot any day of the week. And that's the choice. Yeah, yeah. So, John, and really, that is the choice. So, so John, a question might be from a practical standpoint of view is if you have to keep pilots awake for 60 hours or 64 hours, um, you know, up to two and a half days, uh, do we have a shortage of pilots? Why can't we just change them over and have more pilots? Why do we have to keep them awake for such long periods of time? And wouldn't that negate the need for having pilots taking amphetamines and having these long duty cycles or flight times? Yeah, that would, that would do it. So, so how, <laughs> how likely do you think it is that the government's going to say, hey, Army, here's an unlimited supply of money so you can buy more helicopters at, let's see, I think helicopters are probably running maybe 15, 20 million a pop. And you can train all of these pilots. You've got to have at least two air crew members for each one of those helicopters. So they're probably, I don't know, $100,000 to $200,000, $300,000 a 
a pop to train them. Yeah. Plus, you got to keep them on duty. Yeah, yeah. Whether we're at war or in peacetime, because you can't just generate these people up. You know, you got to have them there. You know, when we need them, because unfortunately, war is like life. It's pretty unpredictable. When it happens, you have to be able to respond to it. So you're talking about building a huge defense force, which you're not even certain that you're going to need. And you got to maintain that force under the possibility that you're going to need to run these 24 seven operations. And, you know, it's just no taxpayers would never stand for that. This is a, this is similar to what we see in other industries where people say, let's just go ahead our shifts or, you know, let's, let's have more people. And it's like, okay, well, if we want to have more people in remote environments, we have to build, build more camps, we need more aircraft to get them in, we need more food. And it costs, you know, 25 million a year and the company's going, well, we just can't afford to do that because it increased our cost curve and lowers our profitability. And then we become bankrupt. We just can't operate. So there's that practicality. And I think what you're doing, that you're Oh, God, I pulled out my headphones. <laughs> yeah, but okay. <laughs> I got so excited there, John, I pulled out my headphones. Um, and, well, you know, you had to deal with the same thing in the mining industry because you were in yeah. safety for a large mining company. And didn't you face the same problem? The, like, the, hey, the, we've got shift same. workers that are yeah. fatigued. And so why don't we just hire freaking more people? Yeah. Or the other one is just close it down, you know, and it's like, well, you can't actually do it. So I think what you've done there, John, is you've, you've hit on the, the challenge of what we spoke about earlier on is these multidisciplinary approaches or cross-disciplinary. I think things can be very much, we can be idealistic. And I think this happens to a lot of scientists. We can be very ide- idealistic in the laboratory or from the research, but then when we bring it out, we put it into the practicality of production or a, a theater of war, when we're looking at costs, we're looking at deployment, we're looking at people, we're looking at all these other elements of what make up uh, an operation or a business, whether it be uh, you know a, a military operation or whether it be a mining operation, whether it be a production operation, whether it be an elite sports team. We just can't keep adding and adding and adding and adding to it in terms of costs. And we see the very same thing in all sports as well, whether it be rugby, Formula One or baseball. You just can't keep buying players and buying players, you know, and rotating them in and out. Um, so it's it's interesting when we when we take science and we apply it out into the real world, uh, it becomes very different. And I think I know a lot of sleep scientists are guilty of that when I spoke in conferences. They've, they've made these kind of suggestions about shutting down overnight or... <laughs> You know, like these very uninformed, silly comments about shutting down the mine operation and oil and gas platform at nighttime. It's like, well, it's it's not like a vacuum cleaner. You don't just turn it on and off. You know, it, there's a commissioning process that can take weeks to get these things up and going. You know, so there's this kind of thing that happens as well. So, so yeah, it's kind of similar there what you're saying. The other question, John, is if people are taking amphetamines and they do a duty cycle, uh, how long will those amphetamines last in someone's system on average? I know like when, when we do caffeine research, which we've done together as well in, in rugby, it can be, you know, four to six hours for a half-life and up to 12 or more hours to get out of the system. So what, what does that look like in people then after they've come off a duty cycle and met, let's say maybe jump in a car and drive home? Well, the half-life of dextroamphetamine is uh, about 10 hours. So it's not... You know, that's maybe like the double the half-life that you would get with caffeine. 
we did, uh, we actually recorded sleep in the laboratory after people had been awake uh, for 40 and even up to 64 continuous hours and had been kept awake on amphetamine. And we looked at their sleep architecture um, following that period. And we also looked at their performance the next day. So we had a re a recovery day after. So they had a recovery sleep night and then they had a recovery day after that before they would go into the next cycle. And we did statistical comparisons in performance and mood data during that recovery day. And we found that there was no statistically significant difference in any meaningful parameters uh, after they had gotten their one night of recovery sleep after 64 continuous hours with amphetamine versus 64 continuous hours with placebo. So, uh, you know, you're talking about acute sleep deprivation periods here. And, you know, as you know, we've only known for about 15, 20 years now that recovery from um, sleep restriction is takes a lot longer than recovery from acute bouts of sleep deprivation. So we were finding that people were, you know, about 90% recovered after an eight-hour sleep period, even though they had been kept awake for 64 hours. Uh, the sleep architecture change primarily was that oftentimes the REM sleep was pushed into the next night because the brain really favors recovery of that slow wave sleep activity over anything else. So you've got people that you keep on like for 40 or 60 hours, they go into uh, what used to be called stage four sleep. <laughs> what What is it now? N3 or N3, whatever yeah, yeah. with the new um, scoring uh, rules, but they go into slow wave sleep in seven minutes. And so, and they spend quite a bit of their sleep period in that slow wave sleep. So I think, you know, the body is really quite good at recovering from those uh, extended acute uh, periods without sleep, probably much more so than those uh, many days of, of sleep restriction. And so that's the situation that you're going to have in the military environment. It's not going to be people are only getting four hours of sleep or whatever. It's really generally the situation that they're going to be almost totally sleep deprived. And so you're just dealing with the situation. I mean, what do you, you know, do you want to say, well, gee, I have drug-free pilots and they're like totally sleep deprived and they're falling asleep at the controls and, they could crash and they might not be able to medevac people out that need to be rescued. They might not be able to defend an installation where people are going to be overrun by the enemy and be killed if they're not there on time. I mean, all of those are the real possibilities of, you know, making sure that you're just doing everything all natural. And, you know, it's just not, it's another issue is, is practicality. And we just mm -hmm. didn't find we just didn't find evidence that, you know, we just didn't find evidence of significant problems. I mean, I, I know it's going to disappoint a lot of people that just don't <laughs> like the idea of using drugs, but we looked. I mean, yeah, yeah. Listen, 
helicopter simulator this is a full up you know 16 million dollar simulator so not just a little toy where we measured their flight performance with a computerized system that looked at their instrument controls and everything numerous times every second and scored how well they were on flight patterns we did it 40 hours with males we repeated the study 40 hours with females we got exactly the same results. Then we did 40 hours in an actual instrumented aircraft with a well-rested safety pilot on board as well. So we weren't taking any chances there, but again, we were recording computerized flight performance data in that aircraft. And then we did 64 continuous hours uh, back in the simulator again, and we actually were going to do a longer period of time and transition that into the aircraft, but there were issues that didn't, really didn't have anything to do with the studies that just sort of prevented us from moving forward with that. But we very systematically uh, researched this issue from both a safety and performance standpoint. And I'll tell you right now, no hesitation whatsoever. I'll take the pilot that's on amphetamine any day of the week than the pilot who's sleep deprived and not getting that assistance. And I won't hesitate one millisecond <laughs> in making that decision. That's, that's, uh, that's interesting. I just want to come back to the recovery sleep, John, because it's obviously a topic of debate amongst the general population and even everybody about, you know, we can sleep deprive ourselves during the week and basically, you know, make up for it within eight hours. Now, we've seen studies that people who constantly do that over time, you know, lots of deleterious effects. Ken Wright has run some studies out of uh, University of Colorado in Boulder showing that people, you know, after a couple of weeks can basically become pre-diabetic and, and gain weight. So I think the difference here is you're talking about this acute or short-term sleep loss or sleep deprivation or very minimal, you know, naps in between. But what you've discussed there about the recovery of sleep is interesting in terms of sleep architecture which is the stage three sleep happening after the short bout because stage three sleep is really important for growth hormone release and physical repair and recovery. Whereas REM sleep is more, you know, kind of a brain reboot for psychological repair and recovery, if you want to call it that. A lot of the long-term study, a lot of the big studies, John, that I've looked at, particularly people with, with obstructive sleep apnea who are generally, you know, obese and probably in poor health, when they get CPAP therapy, they generally have periods of REM rebound or people who have been long-term marijuana smokers when they come off have crazy dreams because they're getting lots of REM rebound. But it would seem to be in this, you found the opposite of that, where after short-term, the physical repair and recovery seems to be prioritized. Do you, can you hypothesize or speculate on, on why that may be? Quite a difference. Actually, I, I think our data do pretty much agree with what you said, because on the first night, after the uh, acute sleep deprivation, then yeah, it was a huge amount of slow wave sleep, much more than you would expect. And, and REM sleep was significantly less than what you would expect. But on the next night after that, there was a significant amount of REM rebound on that uh, night. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so the issue is, 
you know, I think it's interesting because these drugs like tiagabine and I forget what the other one is that um, uh, it's the, the GHB, you know, that are the date rate drugs. You know, one of the issues there is that they're, you know, they really promote this deep, slow wave sleep, which is great if you want to knock somebody out and you don't want them to remember anything that happened to them, which is why these drugs sort of got a bad reputation. But there have been studies out there that show that you can significantly shorten the sleep period uh, and have people function, function effectively if you're augmenting the amount of slow wave sleep that occurs during that period. So I think that really shows you that that slow wave sleep is the most important type of sleep that you're going to have uh, for survival. And so that's what we were seeing was that, you, you know, you go into that slow wave sleep very quickly and you mm. prefer that over the REM sleep. But once that quota is satisfied, then the body says, okay, now we're going to get the REM sleep you know, get, restore that REM sleep that was lost beforehand. So the balance is ultimately maintained, you know, if the opportunity is provided to do so. So I, I don't really think our data are at odds with what you're talking about, because you can imagine, you know, people with, um, you know, these sleep disorders where their sleep is being continuously disrupted. I mean, you know, if they ever do get any decent sleep, then yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that they have quite a bit less REM sleep. Although I don't know this for a fact, I'm just sitting here postulating. I work with sleep disordered people, and that once they're able to get normal sleep, then yeah, now the body's saying, okay, we've taken care of our basic survival yeah. needs. Now let's top it off with this little extra that is going to make life better, but which, which we don't really have to absolutely have to have in order to live from one day to the next. Yeah. I think it's a big difference there. Yeah, I think so. I think as you're talking, I'm just thinking it's always, it's, it's no two cases are alike. It's always different mechanisms to the sleep loss. And then there's the duration. There's the individual factors on top of that as well. And I would speculate that um, U.S. Air Force military fighter pilots are a very much different demographic and cohort than our general hospitalized people with obstructive sleep apnea who have a BMI of 40 and, you know, have bad health parameters because it generally seems to go hand in hand. So very different groups as well in terms of their ability to, to rebound probably from these issues. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, if you're a military pilot, <laughs> you have to pass routine flight physicals. You have to pass physical fitness tests on a frequent basis. I mean, you know, if, if there's a medical problem, you're not going to be on flight status. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really improbable that you could have any kind of significant medical problem and continue to be a military pilot. John, um, obviously, you know, you went into this kind of research around amphetamines, you know, as you said yourself, probably more than skeptical, probably defensive and uh, and somewhat against. And you've obviously, as you said, you've uh, changed your tune and gone the other way. There's, there's other people that advocate for, you know, and this is probably outside the realms of fatigue, but there's other people who advocate for, you know, freedom of 
freedom of choice and legalization of all drugs. People like Dr. Carl Hart um, in, in the US and, and other people have done this as well. And other countries have legalized a number of different drugs. Do you think that, um, you know, these things like dexamphetamines should be potentially looked at for use in other shift work areas, such as mining, trucking, which are probably getting used in a legal sense, but from a more controlled uh, regulatory perspective, do you think they should be looked at under these high-risk industries where people are sleep deprived? I think so. And the reason I don't think so is, as I told you, in the operational military aviation environment, if you're my pilot and I'm your flight surgeon, then every time before you go out on a mission sleep deprived, I'm going to hand you the medication. Mm. I'm going to look at your face. <laughs> And I'm going to give you these medications and I'm going to have a little talk with you. And when you come back, I'm going to look in your face again. And I'm going to say, did you take all his meds? Did you have any problems with them? If you didn't take them, then I want them back. And I'm going to make notes of that. That's a lot different from a shift work environment. I mean, you know, you and I have both spent plenty of times on mining operations. You far more so than I have, but you know, I've seen it. I mean, you know, you got shift change and you got long lines of people and you got to get them on shift. And so just to breathalyze each one of those people mm. takes, you know, a few a seconds. Time, yeah. And so it's just no way you couldn't provide the necessary medical supervision uh, that's that's required there. So no, I don't I, I think without that close medical supervision, it wouldn't be a good idea to do it. Excellent. John, uh, we, we've only scratched the surface of some of the work that you do. And I think uh, I definitely would like to have you on again to talk about your book in more detail. But I do want to give your book a bit of a plug here. Uh, it's called Fatigue in Aviation, A Guide to Staying Awake at the Stick. It is available on Amazon. Uh, the link will be in the show notes if you want to buy it. Um, this book is absolutely brilliant. I've, I think I've purchased about, I don't know, 30 to 50 copies of it over the years and given it to people and everybody loves it, whether it be aviation or not. There's lots of really good stuff in here and all John's work is uh very well referenced, lots of tool, tools in here to use, lots of good thinking. So if you're even not from a, an aviation background, there's some really good things in here. So you can buy it as hardcover or Kindle on Amazon. Um, or if you search it, I'm sure you can buy it at any good uh, stockist. Uh, John is also on ResearchGate if you want to follow his research. John has over 136, publica 136 136 publications on ResearchGate. So obviously uh, far more qualified than I and well qualified here. And John is also on LinkedIn. But John, if anybody else wants to get in contact with you, because you do do you do independent consulting, obviously you do a lot of stuff with the military. If people did want to talk to you about potentially flying you first class to Switzerland to speak at a conference, they are the minimum requirements for my friend Dr. John Caldwell. First class champagne all the way. Chardonnay, sorry, Chardonnay. Uh, if people do want to get in contact with you, John, what's the best way they can get in contact? So my email is drjohncaldwell at gmail.com. So I'm happy. I mean, anybody that, you know, would like to follow up with anything, then, you know, even when I teach classes and which I still do the flight surgeons course down at Fort Rucker and um, sometimes still do some workshops at aerospace medicine and other 
uh, forums and I always tell people, you know, if you think of something after the fact that, you know, you'd like to do a follow-up question and shoot me an email and I'll be glad to do my best to answer your question. Excellent. And we're uh, slowly working on John to make some digital content so he can uh, get up onto the interwebs for people to follow because uh, there's lots of great information there in John's head as, as you've heard today. And, uh, We've only scratched the surface here today, so we'll definitely have John back on to talk about the book in more detail and maybe some other other work. Uh, the problem I have with John is, and I think John might be the same, if I dare say, we could sit and talk all day and all night so <laughs> about all sorts of subjects, <laughs> not just sleep. So, uh, John, thank you very much for your time. Um, uh, I hope you really enjoy your evening there in Ohio and uh, have a nice Christmas break, happy holidays, whatever they say, happy Hanukkah. I'm not sure what's politically correct anymore, but if you're getting some time off, make sure you enjoy it. Eat, eat lots and drink even more. It's right on my plans. And I really am honored to be included in your podcast and I really appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks, John. 